The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Galatians 5, verses 7 through 12. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the law that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. Thank you, Trevor. We got some things to talk about in that passage, don't we? All right. Um, Well, and we're going to. uh, We're going to work through this passage kind of a verse at a time or a a thought at a time. Um, But... This, one of the things I love about living in this city, living in Nashville, is um, it's a songwriter's town. And uh, I know that there are a lot of songwriters in this room. I know so there are song- people who are professional songwriters in this room, and I know that there are a lot of people who don't make their living writing songs, but they love the craft of it. Uh, and I do as well, and I've been a songwriter for, uh, since, my, since I was in high school. Uh, and I'm fascinated by the craft of it, and so I, I, I love when I discover a songwriter who is, um, where I just feel like they're just in control of what they're doing. I feel like Jackson Brown is this way. I feel uh, like Paul Simon is this way. Uh, But a recent um, songwriter that I've just really taken to is a guy named Jason Isbell. Uh, some of you know who Jason Isbell is, um, but as a songwriter, I think he's just one of the one of the best lyricists uh, that I've really encountered in a long time. Uh, and he operates as a songwriter from the belief that if you want a song to connect with people, be specific, not general. And so it, it could seem counterintuitive, right, that if you want a lot of people to connect to a song, speak in generalities rather than specifics, because that way it'll leave it more broadly open. But that's not how we work. The way we work is if, if you actually get specific, we translate those specifics. So you don't just sing about a car, you sing about a Hudson Commodore, right? You don't just sing about rural America, you sing about your specific small town. You don't just sing about getting into a fight, you sing about getting hit in the stomach with a fungo bat, right? That's one of the things that he mentions in a song. And what happens is the specifics don't alienate the listener. What they do is instead they engage us because we hear these details. And even though they're not our own specific details, we translate them. We hear Hudson Commodore and I think Chevy Citation 1981, right? We, we, we do this. We translate. We think of not just a Cars in general, but our specific car, our specific town, our own specific harrowing adventures. One of the ways that Isbel gets specific in his songwriting is a lot of times he'll open a song mid-story. There's no preamble. We're just kind of dropped into the middle of something that's happening. 
And so he has a song called Speed Trap Town, and it opens with this line. She said, it's none of my business, but it breaks my heart. I dropped a dozen cheap roses in my shopping cart. And it's, something's happening, and the rest of the song is left for us to put together the pieces of what is, is happening there in that moment. And as we listen and we put the pieces together, the little breadcrumb of, the little trail of clues that are given to us, we begin to, to understand, oh, the woman speaking is, is the cashier, and he's buying roses to lay at the grave of a father who abused and abandoned him. And so we put those scenes together, threading lyrics through with detail like this. What it does is it intrigues us. It intrigues the hearer. It makes us lean forward and pay attention to the scene. This passage that we just read is one that has some details and it's some little crumbs, some little breadcrumbs that are putting together this story that we've been in now for, for several weeks of working our way through this book, Galatians. And we know that there's false teachers, we know that there's disruption, we know that there's conflict, we know that there are th- high stakes things happening with the church, but never yet has Paul said, this is exactly who they are, this is exactly what they're saying, this is exactly how you're responding, but what have we done? We've put some of the pieces together to be able to fill out the picture, right? And so today's passage contains some more details that flesh out the story for us, that are there for us to begin to put together. And these are details specifically about what the false teachers um, are teaching and, and, and how Paul is responding. And so we're gonna put the pieces together a little bit, but these details help us flesh out the situation and really see what's at stake. And so we're gonna look at that uh, right now. We're gonna walk it through kind of a thought at a time And so I want to start with actually verses uh, 7 and 8 and 9. So, Arik, if you wouldn't mind going back to that first scripture slide, I think these are all on here. Um, So he says this, you were running well. Who has hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It could feel like a lot of just different statements, what do they have to do with each other? But the image that he's giving here is Paul uses sports metaphors a lot, uh, athletics, and, and, and this is an image here where the Galatian believers were running. They were running the gospel race, and they were running the gospel race well. And they were going straight, and they were going true, and then somebody stepped in front of them and slowed them down, and slowed them down by introducing confusion about the race itself. And the detail that Paul gives us is what they were hindered by was they were hindered by persuasion. Whatever they were hearing was persuasive to them. The false teachers were persuasive, but they weren't from God. So what was the false teaching? Well, we've already read a lot about this. It's centered on the need for Galatian uh, believers, for Gentile converts to be circumcised. So that's the, uh, that's the, 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 the thing that's, that it's kind of centered on. But, but legalism and human effort are really the issues at stake. He's focusing on legalism and human effort. Circumcision is an expression of that. When I think about our culture now, I think that we are living in a time where we're still legalists, right? This is a room, we're all legalistic about something. Right? And we may be all legalistic about different things, 
Uh, we're in an election year, so our legalism is going to shine uh, for, for, for many people. Social media, we're going to see it all over the place, right? But we're still legalistic, even though we're not necessarily legalistic about the same things as, as there, but it's still at play in us, that issue. Legalism in its simplest form is, is this. It's the insistence that people believe and practice certain things in order to gain and maintain superiority over others and to earn favor with God. So I, I believe certain things and I do certain things and upon my performance of those things, I find my ranking and I find my place. And so for the Galatians, the legalistic push was adherence to Jewish tradition. So the false teachers are saying you need to practice circumcision, you need to keep holy feasts, you need to eat clean and kosher. Today, it's not necessarily that, but the legalism is still in play. Today, usually our, our, our legal, the voices of legalism in our culture are telling us to tighten our allegiance to secular values like autonomy and to abandon any spiritual or moral code that doesn't support my right to do whatever I want to do at any point, right? And so we have kind of a legalistic zeal for individual freedom, morally, relationally, culturally. And anybody who begins to tread on that or say, actually, there's such a thing as right and wrong, gets shouted down because that's unacceptable, right? That's, that's legalism. It's legalism working itself out in our, in our culture. So our legalism culturally is a, legal, is a legalism. This is, it's a hard word to keep saying. I'm going to get away from it in a minute. It's a legalism to secular humanism. And just as it was for the Galatians, legalism can be framed in very persuasive ways. Sometimes the argument is framed as, oh, that's what you thought, actually you misunderstood, it's this. Sometimes the persuasion is, you cannot say that, or the world will turn on you, right? That can also be pretty persuasive. But here's what happens when you begin to live by just a little bit of legalism. It works like leaven, Paul says, and it works its way through your entire life. Why? Because one little legalistic act has behind it a legalistic principle which will work its way through an entire community. And so Paul is saying, look, if you buy into circumcision as necessary for salvation, you're going to buy into all kinds of things that you will believe are necessary for salvation that are not the grace of Christ alone. And so Paul is pushing on that. He's saying, you were running well, you had this, and then you were persuaded to stop running the race and you were thrown into confusion and this legalism is working its way through your community. That's why Paul said back in Galatians 5, 1 and 2, just a few verses earlier, stand firm in your freedom. Don't give your freedom away. Don't relinquish it. So then he comes to these next verses. Um, We'll take 10 and 11 right now. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will 
take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And so here the plot thickens. We gain some more details. The false teaching has been persuasive, but who taught it? And what had they said that was so compelling to the Gentiles? Now we're starting to actually see some of those specifics in what Paul's saying. First he says, the one who is troubling you, whoever he is. And so what it seems here is that there's one key representative or leader of the false teachers who Paul is holding accountable for this. And either Paul doesn't know who it is, he says whoever it is. Either, either he doesn't know who it is or he does, but he's choosing not to name him. But what's clear is the false teaching is a deliberate sabotage. But then he says this, he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you're gonna take no other view. In other words, Paul is saying he believes before God that the Galatian church will land on the side of truth in the end and that the false teacher will be judged. But here he gets into this. He says, if I still preach circumcision, what's going on with that? Are you all tracking with me so far, by the way? I know I'm, I'm unpacking this kind of a sentence at a time. But this part here is where it kind of comes, comes clear for us. He says, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? So in that, we understand, oh, he's being, they're, they're, the false teachers are telling the Galatian believers that Paul still preaches circumcision. So he's having to respond to that, saying, you think I still preach circumcision? But that's what's happening. From this, we deduce the false teacher wasn't suggesting that he opposed Paul. And maybe that's what was so persuasive about it, is he's not coming in saying, I know Paul told you this, but actually he's wrong, it's this. What if the false teacher came in and said, oh yeah, Paul, yeah, this is what, we agree on this. Oh, he must just not have had time to tell you all about, let me, about circumcision. Let me flesh that out for you. Let me fill out that image. Let me, let me take you through the conclusion of that teaching. He was saying, no, we, Paul and I agree with each other. Paul supports what I'm teaching you. It's a necessity for faith. He just may have neglected to mention it, may not have crossed his mind, may not have had time to get at it. Of course we agree together. And at this point, at this point it's important for us to remember something, and that is that we are working our way through a letter Because we may get to this point, we may say, wait a minute, we have been in this series for months, right? I have said so many things back in 2019 (laughs) about Paul's view of circumcision. And I've still been at it in 2020, right? And so we may think, how could they have believed that Paul supported circumcision? He's been hammering away at this issue for months now. Well, the truth is, actually, he's only been hammering away at this issue for 20 minutes, right? Because if you read the book of Galatians, it's not a very long letter. It takes about 30 minutes to read from front to back. And we're about 20 minutes in to this letter being read. And this is Paul's response to the false teaching. And he's getting now finally to the place where he's been setting the table to get specific about the false teaching. And and that's where we are now. And how does Paul respond to the idea that he supported circumcision? Well, first, he spends the first four chapters of the book 
dismantling the very notion that circumcision is necessary for faith. But now, he gets at this, why would, why would it be credible for anybody to say that I preach circumcision? Because as well, you know as well as I do that the message that I preach, I am persecuted for. If I'm preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? See, the persecution comes because of the term that he uses, the offense of the cross, which we're going to come back to as a way of landing this sermon. We're going to talk about the offense of the cross. But look what he's saying here. Paul's saying, look, salvation by a work of the flesh is not an offensive message. It's flattering Salvation by your best efforts is the plan that human beings have been drawn to since the beginning of trying to save ourselves. It's it's a message that flatters you, it affirms you, it says, hey, look, you're not actually that bad. In fact, you're actually good enough that you can attain the standard of righteousness through your conduct that the God who made you desires. And all you have to do is just keep some rules, practice some traditions, observe a particular diet, a certain calendar. And Paul is saying, I'm being persecuted for the message that I'm teaching. And the message that he's teaching is not flattering. It's offensive. And what he's doing is he's fighting for clarity to make that message as clear as he possibly can, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone and not of our own works. Amen. Amen. So we're going to get to the offense of the cross, but I have to deal with verse 12. I wish they would emasculate themselves. We're going to come back to the offense of the cross. I want to take a brief PG-13 moment to unpack Galatians 5.12 and parents... I'm going to do my best to make sure that the ride home is not awkward. But it's important for us to, to, to look at this because Paul is not just throwing out a burn here. Like, he's not just insulting people. He's saying, I wish those who preach that you can be saved through circumcision would go ahead and castrate themselves. That's what he's saying. It's strong. He's saying he wishes that those who argue for the removal of foreskins would not just remove a slice from themselves, but the whole thing. That's what he's saying. He's using irony here because he's, he's making a play on words because circumcision literally means to cut around. And he's saying, don't just cut around, cut off. But what's he, what's, he, what's he doing here? Well, one, he's, he's bowing up. He's letting the Galatian believers know that he is not only a little upset about this, right? This is a strong thing for him to say. But it's more than wordplay. What he's saying is, if you require circumcision, then you render the gospel impotent. That's part of the wordplay. If you require circumcision for salvation, then you render the gospel impotent. He would rather that they render themselves impotent. 
because he wants their false teaching to die with them. And with no one left to carry on the perversion of the gospel. If you're part of a local church, I'm a pastor of a local church. Many of you are members of this local church. One of the realities of being in a local church is for some churches it's every so often, for other churches it's 24-7, there are troublemakers in the congregation. There are people who come in with an agenda for how things ought to be. I've been a pastor since 2003 was when I became a full-time pastor in a local church. And I have radar that goes up sometimes when I'm meeting people and I'm telling don't get in your own head by the way right now, but what am I going to say? <laughs> I'm not secretly hoping that the person I'm talking to will catch my drift. But my antenna goes up sometimes when I'm meeting with somebody and I can tell, oh, they, they're coming with an agenda and they're not nece- I don't feel like they're necessarily wanting to step in and be a part of a community as much as I feel like maybe they're wanting to step in and make this community better as they see better being, you know? And, and, and it's something that happens. And, and part of the work of a church is to say there are going to be times when people are in our midst and they want things to happen certain ways. They want things to, they, they, they want to impose on people things that are not necessary for the gospel, but are necessary for their understanding of how Christians are supposed to live and work and, and do all kinds of things. And, and, and so they'll, they'll, they'll impose these things, and, and it becomes a dynamic in the life of a church. And I read a passage of scripture like this, and personally, as a pastor, I find it very, um, uh, I get a lot of direction from this passage, and it's also very convicting for me. Because what Paul is doing here is he's behaving as their pastor. And he's saying, I'm going to speak with more authority than the false teachers who are whispering in your ear. And I'm owning that authority because I'm the one who pastors you. I'm the one who planted that church. I'm the one who sowed the seeds of the gospel among you and the Lord has grown those things, but he is fighting for them, which sometimes looks like fighting with them. And I know in the life of our church, we, we're, we're young and we've, uh, the Lord has, has uh, blessed us with not a lot of drama um, as a congregation, but those things will come. Uh, they'll come because it's just a part of the way the church works. And I ask you, pray for me on two things. Pray for me, one, that I don't become like the false teachers who begin to insist on things for you that Christ doesn't insist on for you. Because I can do that. I watch it happen all the time. The other thing I want to ask you to pray for is to pray that we as a congregation would be sensitive to the Spirit's voice, that we would be sensitive to the instruction of Scripture, which brings me back to one of our key values as a church, right? Under this category, we have worship, connect, serve, these three ideas that we're putting and we're talking about all the time. And one of them is that if you consider yourself a part of the body of Christ at Christ Presbyterian Church in any of our locations, that we would be people who would spend time with Jesus every day. That's not because God is looking at us and saying, I want to make sure that you have a 20-minute devotional every day. And if you don't, you know, you're, you're not measuring up. 
It's because God's word is living and active. And the more fluent we are in the truth of scripture, the more ready we are to recognize false teaching, the more discerning we are when somebody comes in with a message that twists and corrupts the gospel, the more discerning you are as a congregation to speak back into the words that I say as your preacher, right? Because of social media now, I can witness in real time the moral and ethical collapses of pastors around the world, and it happens all the time. This past week I saw two. And you know what one of the main things that's removing pastors from their pulpits is right now? It's bullying. It's bullying their congregations and their staff. It's domineering personalities, my way or the highway, an absence of humility and correctability and teachability. And just this week, two pastors that I know of were removed from their churches because of that conduct. Paul here is saying the purity of the gospel is so important that I will say strong, combative things to make sure that you're hearing how important this is that we cling to the truth of the gospel. Is Paul being too intense here? Listen, if this false teaching undermines the work of Christ, does it deserve a softer response? Here's what John Stott had to say. He said, I venture to say that if we were as concerned for God's church and God's word as Paul was, we too would wish the false teachers might cease from the land. There's so much at stake in this passage. There's so much at stake in the book of Galatians. So let's go back to verse 11 and conclude this way. Paul says that preaching circumcision removes the offense of the cross. What does this mean? You've heard that the gospel is a stumbling block. Perhaps you've heard that the message of the gospel is offensive. If you haven't, it is offensive. And if you're hearing a gospel, or if you're hearing a message about Jesus that isn't offensive, it should take your antenna up a little bit to say, wait, wait, wait. If Jesus is just cool with everybody thinking whatever they want, what was the purpose of the cross? Was that just God overspending? The cross is offensive. The cross itself as a symbol is offensive. It was offensive to the Romans and to the Jews at the time of Galatians. To Romans, the cross was the most gruesome means of execution imaginable. People who died this way were the worst of the worst, right? It was the worst punishment that a person could endure, the worst sentence that could be given to the worst criminal. Here's the offense of the cross. When Jesus said that he endured that death as a substitute for you, that is a statement about your corruption before God that is offensive. It ought to be, right? It ought to be. He's not being ambiguous here. When Jesus said that he endured the cross as a substitute for us, he is counting us as being as corrupt as the most lawless criminal in the land in the eyes of God. To the Jews, their scripture said, cursed is anyone who dies on a tree. 
And for the Jewish people, they believed that the Messiah was actually going to be a military hero who was going to deliver them from external evil. But Jesus presented them then with this contradiction. What was the contradiction? A crucified Messiah. He didn't come to deliver Israel from Rome. He came to deliver them from their own sin and rebellion against God. The offense of the cross is this. It indicts us in no uncertain terms. We're not just at odds with God apart from Christ. We are lawless enemies at war with him in our hearts. That's what Paul says in Colossians 1. And it took nothing less, nothing less than the death of the Son of God to address and solve the severity of the problem. And that is an offensive reality. The cross of Jesus has always been offensive. It's a bitter pill to swallow. But it's not the end of the story. Absorbing God's wrath toward our sin is not the only thing that Jesus did for us. Dying is not the only thing he did for us either. What he did is he defeated death. And he rose from the grave. This is the good news of the gospel, which doesn't stand unless we understand the bad news of the gospel too. When Jesus took our sin upon himself, he placed his righteousness on us like a robe that we're now wrapped up in. And when he died, he paid the wage of sin, but because he himself was faultless, by the way, I'm preaching the gospel to you right now. When he died, he paid the wage of sin, but because he himself was faultless, death couldn't hold him. And so he rose from the grave. He defeated the power of death. And when he rose on Easter, which is coming, he defeated death not only for himself, but for those who have been robed in his righteousness by grace through faith in him. The glorious good news of the gospel cannot be seen unless it's contrasted with the catastrophic bad news of the offense of the cross. Martin Luther King Jr. said this way, only when it's dark enough can you see the stars. This entire letter is Paul's message to the Galatians and God's word to us to never minimize the work of Christ. If we can save ourselves, Christ died for nothing and God overspent and is a miscalculating fool that you don't need. But Jesus didn't die for nothing. He died for you. He died for me. Because although we were created for a relationship with our creator, we have all turned away, and we've all run to other lovers. We're corrupt like that. But the message of the cross is not that we have a second chance, because that would be as condemning a message as you have a first chance, don't blow it. You have a second chance, don't blow it either. I blew past that second chance a while back. We don't just have a second chance. What we have instead is we have a redeemer. We have one who doesn't demand that we try harder, but rather demands that we rest in his finished work on our behalf as the only place we're going to find rest for our souls. The details of this story are so compelling. The story of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ who robes us in his righteousness and gives us the eyes of faith and who lavishes us with his grace. And so my prayer for us 
is that we would never trade that in for something as empty and hollow as a work of the flesh. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you that you don't call ministers of your word to be novel, uh, that it's not my calling to come up with something new to say, uh, but that it's my calling as a pastor here to be faithful to preach the old, old story. Father, we know that we struggle to remember that we're, we're so prone to forget, but you have loved us and you have redeemed us in ways that are so magnificent to behold and I pray that you would give us eyes of faith to see more deeply as we grow in our relationship with you the wonder and splendor and mystery and beauty of the gospel. Thank you that it's true. Lord, thank you that we get to uh, read letters like this where we're getting your word spoken to us and we're also hearing a very specific struggle that was happening with the church and we're seeing Paul um, pastor and lead and guard and protect. Uh, Lord, help us to be people who are hungry to know the truth of your word, that we would run this race well. Thank you for your work on our behalf, for your kindness to us. Thank you for this congregation, this local church, this body of believers who are gathered together. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray and for your glory. Amen.